Well, good evening. It's good to see each of you here. It's good to be here with you all. <clears throat> Appreciate the opening. I guess we, we never really talked about the what he might do for a devotional or what I would be talking about, but uh, it really builds, lays a foundation for what I was planning to talk about and thinking about thankfulness. There's a there's a kind of a interesting correlation between thankfulness and what we have. And it's typically backwards to what it should be. In other words, the more we have, the less we tend to be thankful. We all are probably familiar with the idea that we should be thankful. And it's a simple concept. I don't expect to tell you something about being thankful or that you should be thankful that you haven't already heard. I'm pretty sure we all know the verses like in everything give thanks and things like that. But yet, even though I don't really know any of you personally that well, I can guess that we've probably all dealt with unthankfulness very recently to some extent or another. And that's not an accusation, that's just an observation of Mankind or our human nature. But as we think of thankfulness, it's, we, I'm sure we all understand well, thankfulness is not a result of what we have. While we should and must be thankful for what we have, it is, it is not the foundation on which thankfulness is laid. And so as such, I, that's what I would like to look at this evening. It's a, it's a, Message. I don't, I'm not a good at title making, but I would call it <clears throat> Thankful for God. And be looking at some of the different characteristics of God and considering what it means to me. Why then, or am I thankful as I consider who God is? And that, I believe, is a foundation that is much more sure than considering just what we have. Well, I encourage you to consider what you have and be thankful for what you have, but it is not the foundation that will last because what we have comes and goes. The first characteristic of God, there's a number of these. I don't know how many I'll cover, be able to. It's very much of an overview. And I like to think of this as an opportunity to get your minds rolling on the idea and you take it from there. We don't have time in this message to consider God himself in a lot of detail. Uh, there's, There's just too much there to consider. I can't even, I don't even think I have anywhere near an exhaustive list of his attributes. But the first one I want to consider is his faithfulness. Uh, Just a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And this, this attribute, I guess, for lack of a better term, we would call it of God, his faithfulness, is, is really foundational to any other thing you might consider about God or anything that God has ever said. Uh, Another similar description might be that that 
He is unchanging. But if God were not faithful, he could say he is love, but what if that changes? Well, yeah, God said he was, God is love. We, we read that in 1 John. Well, but is that still true? If he wasn't faithful, may or may not be. It wouldn't matter. What he has told us would be all subjective. And so I think faithfulness is, of course, foundational as we consider who God is. Nothing would have any meaning about what we know of God if he might change. Malachi 3.6, he says, he keeps his covenant, I change not. Excuse me, I change not is, is from Malachi 3, verse 6. In Deuteronomy 7, what we read, it says he keeps his covenant, he does not change. Another verse, 1 Corinthians 10.13, I won't necessarily be turning to a lot of passages or even reading a lot of scripture, just referencing a lot of scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us he's, he does, he's faithful in that he doesn't allow us to be tempted above what we are able. And I had to ponder that a little bit. It seems in recent times we kind of consider and we say, well, what's going to happen next? Is Maybe we've thought that or said that at times. And, and that's, that's been a thought that man has had over the years for many, many generations. So in some sense that's not new, but... One thing we can know is whatever happens next, it's not too big of a temptation for what God provides. And as such, we have nothing to worry about tomorrow because we know God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted more than we can stand. We don't have to wonder, well, what if I face this tomorrow and then I won't be able to handle it? God is faithful. Another reason to be thankful and on the flip side, I like to think of it in a sense. Hebrews 2, verse 17 says he is a faithful high priest and he makes reconciliation for the sins of the people. He takes care of the things. Kevin talked about this already. He, he's dealt with our sins. He is there waiting to atone if, if we have not asked him to. If we have, he has atoned for our sin. And so as such, you know, in the last one I said, we don't have to fear what might happen, and at the same time, we don't need to fear what has happened. We don't have to worry about the past. It seems we're tended, our tendency is to fear one or the other, or maybe both. But we have no need to fear the past as we think of God's faithfulness. I don't have much time to look at each one. Like I said, this is just a I see it as a to to get the ball rolling, as they say, sometime for you to consider in your own, um, expand on in your own consideration of thankfulness and being thankful this season and, and hopefully more than just this season. Number two, God is good. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what should I do to be saved? And he said, none is good but God. And yet today we use the word good quite frequently and maybe even somewhat loosely in Romans 11, maybe a verse or a passage we can turn to. I want to look at, I'm not going to be reading many verses, but I want to look at a few of them. But Romans 11, he's talking about the picture of an olive tree and how there was the, the branches that were broken off so that the wild branches could be grafted in. 
uh, kind of a, and he talk, he's talking about the Jews and Gentiles a little bit, and I'm not going to try to cover all that, the details of that. I just want to notice a couple of things, and especially verse 22 of Romans 11. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. In the devotional we read about the, the children of Israel and how they were not necessarily a thankful people, by and large, and they suffered for it. And here he talks about the goodness and severity of God, and sometimes we we get mixed up about this, and, and I think I've often myself under, misunderstood this verse. It, in a sense, it almost sounds like he's saying, well, God's good to some people and he's severe to others. And we maybe automatically insert the thought that that depends on how he treats us, but it's not, not the context here. Like we said, if we look back at verse 17, he's talking about this picture of a, being grafted in. He said, if some of the branches were be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So, and I would take that root and fatness, and I would say that is God's goodness, is it not? And so the, the, the differentiation there between the goodness of God and the severity of God is our connection to God, not, that, not what we are experiencing We can only experience his goodness as we are joined to him. And when we are joined to him, everything is made good. If we go back to Romans 8, you know, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. The same idea. On the other hand, there is nothing good apart from God. And so if we are cut off from God, there is no source of goodness because God is good. And that's why Jesus said, none is good but God. Like I said, we use the word much more loosely than what it's intended to be when we say God is good. And that's not meant as a criticism, it's just that we, we lose the significance of that thought. We tend to measure the goodness of God and whether something is good when we use that term based on how I feel about it at the moment. We say, that meal was good. Well, why was it good? Well, it tasted good. I enjoyed it or whatever. And so it goes. Instead of looking at the effect it has on me or on others and measuring goodness, in other words, if an experience is enjoyable, it's good. God is good because things went well today, we might say. And that's, that's totally missing the goodness of God. Because God is good because God is good, regardless of what happens to us or whether we enjoy it or not. Number three, God is faithful, God is good, and God is light. You could also say God is true, God is pure. Several other things you might describe him in that way. Since the beginning of time, God has been the source of light. He created light in creation. 
And as we think of the children of Israel, we've talked about their example. He was a pillar of fire by night for a light to guide them in the way they should go. And Jesus, when he came to the world, he said he is the light of the world. A couple of different psalms talk about God being light. Psalms 104.2 says he covers himself with light like a garment or like clothes. In a sense, he, he hides himself. Not that he's hiding from us or hiding something, but his glory, the fullness of his, his person is hidden from us as humans. There are a lot of parallels to that, and as you consider, just like he wears light like clothes, we wear clothes. Not because there's something wrong with us, but because of sin, Right? You see that in the garden. That's when man was, because of sin, man had to wear clothes. There was a problem, not with God, as we consider him being clothed in light, but with man because of sin. Very much parallel to our own situation as we we think of God having man wear clothing because of sin. Not because there was suddenly something wrong with their body as such, but because of sin. Psalm 119, 105, he says, He is a light, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. While he is, acts as clothing to God himself, light is a guide just like it was to the children of Israel for us. And number three, darkness. Psalm 139, 12 says, Darkness and light are alike to God. Nothing is hidden from God. He is light. He sees everything on the one hand. And as 1 John says, 1 verse 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness. Like I said earlier, he doesn't wear light like, like clothing to hide something. He's not, he doesn't have something he just doesn't want us to know about. He's protecting us. And he will, in the fullness of time, when we are in his presence, free from this body of sin, we will see him face to face. And along with that is the fact that he is, I said, God is pure, perhaps is another way of saying it. God is light, there is no darkness in him. James also says it this way, that that God cannot tempt man with evil, and he is so pure himself that he cannot be tempted to evil. God is light. There is no darkness. There's no shadows or corners or anything hidden with God or nothing that is not as it should be. Number four. God is holy. God is holy. This is one that could we could go on and on. Well, I shouldn't say this one because we could do that with each one of them. We could go on and on about them. In fact, this is very loosely based on a, a series of a bunch of different messages that I preached a number of years ago. Um, each message being covered by each one of these points. So this is very much overview, as I'm sure you all realize. <clears throat> My most holy thing, according to Strong's, that's what that refer, the word holy refers to. 
And we think of those, the, both John and Isaiah, they had these visions of God, or they were brought into God's presence, however you want to picture that. And they saw the seraphims, the angels, singing holy, or saying, holy, holy, holy. And to us, you know, we have different songs that they kind of repeats that thought, holy, holy, holy. And to our culture, it just kind of seems repetitious, and why do we keep saying it like that? But to them, it, it was, and hopefully to us too, we can grasp the concept that it was, it was building on one another. It was, it was a culmination of the thought. It was adding weight or, or completeness to the thought. Barnes says that it indicates, the repetition indicates a supremely holy. And as holiness of God, it can seem kind of fearful and distant. You know, he's shrouded in light. We can't really see exactly who he is, just like we can't really see the sun. You can see the light coming from the sun, but if you, you shouldn't try to look at the sun. But it, you, you could try to look at the sun all you wanted, but you wouldn't see it because it's hidden by light. And it, it can kind of seem distant and vague. And God's holiness can maybe seem, make him seem the same way. But I think of Hebrews 12, verse 10. Again, I... I Hope I'm not throwing around too many verses and not reading enough, but um, there he tells us, he's talking about how a father corrects his children. He, he says he chastens us so we can be partakers of his holiness. And so we, we should not see his holiness as something uh, intimidating or distant, but rather something that he is desiring to draw us into. He's not someone who is, or like we might picture someone who is really good at something, maybe far better than you know you'll ever be, and it's kind of intimidating because they know they're good and they kind of arrogant about it maybe, and they're belittling of others who aren't as good. But that's not the, the way of God, and I'm sure we've all experienced the opposite too, somebody who's very humble while being very good at something and enjoys um, encouraging and helping them along, and that's the picture we have of God in, in wanting us to enter in his holiness. And also, there's the thought of holiness. There's one way it's said is worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is beautiful. God is beautiful because he is holy. And I, and I don't know how to, to kind of tie those two together in my own mind, but God is beautiful in his holiness. <clears throat> If God were not holy, his perfect presence would be no different than what we experience here on earth. That's why the separation. And some people question God sometimes, if God were this or God were that, why does this happen? Well, the real short answer, in, in a sense, is that we are not in the fullness of God's presence. Now, if we get to heaven, just this is a hypothetical kind of illustrate what I'm saying. If we got to heaven and we found people still died, people still suffered, and all these other awful things happened in the presence of God, then we might have grounds to question God. Now, I say that very carefully if you understand what I'm getting at. But here we are separated from God, being called into his presence and his holiness, and yet we still we experience those things because of sin all around us. We know that. But that's why it's different. God is holy. We are on the road to holiness, I trust. Number five, God is merciful. Lamentations 3.22, I'm sure we're familiar with this. 
22 and 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. As we've heard already, we all deserve death because of sin. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, he said here in Lamentations. We don't have even a sort of a chance outside of God's mercy. We, don't, we wouldn't have an opportunity to, to exist. Our parents would have not had an opportunity. Our great-grandparents and so on. There was no hope outside of God's mercy. And so if we exist, or even for a short period of time, we think of somebody maybe that dies young, and we think, that doesn't seem fair. But if we exist at all, for no matter how short a time, that is of God's mercy. We have it backwards so quickly. It's hard to, to back away so far as to think how little I deserve. Well, just by saying how little I deserve means that I have it wrong because we don't deserve anything. It fails not. I've thought of this. I've heard this verse many times. I've thought about this verse. But recently in preparing this message, I had to think about it a little differently. It says it fails not and it's new every morning. And I... I thought about that, you know, as you think of things you might use or whether it be a tool or what what have you, a vehicle. If you've ever bought a new vehicle, I never have. But um, I have vehicles that haven't failed, okay? I'll put it that way. You know, they still work. They get me around, but they are not perfect. They are not new. Whatever it is you want to imagine, you know, you have things that, they just they keep doing the job, but kind of so so, you know. It's and it, that's that's kind of the picture of it doesn't fail. But it says that's not where he stops when he describes God's mercy. He says it's new every morning. And so no matter what happens, it's brand new, just like it was entirely designed to be. No shortcomings, no oldness, no rust, no wear. You know, you take. You take a knife or something and the the edge wears off and it's dull. It hasn't failed, it's still a knife and you can still kind of cut things, but it is not like it should be. And there's, you can think of a whole lot of other things, I'm sure. But God's mercy is brand new. It's just exactly like it's supposed to be every morning, every day. It's always performing flawlessly just as it should be. Number six, God is righteous or just, perhaps, is another way you could say a similar thought. Righteous, kind of building on the idea of him being new every morning. Thayer says this word means the state of him who is as he ought to be. I sometimes take and just shorten the word. If you want to think of the word righteous, just shorten it and say right. God's right. Okay? Righteous makes it sound religious or or something you might say in church and sometimes it sounds confusing or a big word, but it just means he's right. It's the way it should be. And as we think of justice, it means he is judging right. Revelation 15.3, Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. We think of God's righteousness, God's mercy, God's justice. 
that's always a challenge to try to tie it together in us limited human minds because if if you picture a judge and as, as you picture mankind we maybe will try to show mercy but as soon as we do we've distorted justice or we say no we got to be just here and then right away we've distorted mercy that's that at least as i observe it and as i think of it that's always how it happens if you try to do one you you mess up the other you, you just it doesn't work but god has it right he's merciful and he's just and he does them both exactly right all the time he never gets off on mercy without being just or he never gets off out on just without being merciful i don't know how he does that exactly except for he's god but we as humans, I don't, I don't know, like I said, I'm speaking from my perspective. We as humans, we always get it wrong. We, we never can get it right together. But God does. He is right. He does it without compromising either one. I think of Daniel, <clears throat> when I think of God being right, I, I marvel at the man, Daniel, and it's, I know the different stories about Daniel that we probably all know. Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel and the, the different visions that he's had. But I think Daniel chapter 9 really sticks out to me. And we don't have time to, that's another passage that can, can be a message easily in itself. But Daniel chapter 9, it, it might not, might be another passage to turn to if you have your Bibles. Um, here is a passage where he's says it happens in the first year of Darius or Darius, however you pronounce that. And it, verse two says kind of the setting for this chapter. In the first year of his reign, I Daniel understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So I, I trust you know a little bit about Daniel's history. He never lived much of his life even in um, Jerusalem or in the, uh, the land there, the prom what they would have called the promised land, the land where he belonged. He lived throughout the entire captivity pretty much in Babylon. And this was many, many years in. I, I didn't check to, to verify. It was after the Babylonian Empire had fallen because Darius was the one that had defeated Belshazzar. And you read that in the chapter before when they had the handwriting on the wall and Daniel interpreted that. Now you've got to be careful though because Daniel, the book of Daniel, unless you pay close attention, you will not catch the sequence because it's not recorded in order. All right? And then, but Daniel chapter 9, he says he, he realized these things and you think of this man who had lived... Um, you know, he'd been challenged different times. He'd lived through hard times and good times too, probably. He was promoted in, in different, under different kings. But he had, he'd always lived as a, as a kind of an outcast or apart from home, basically. I mean, he, he had lived as a, a very young man in his, his homeland. And as far as we know, probably never returned because he would have been 
pushing 90, most likely before anybody returned to, to Jerusalem, or to, yeah, back to the promised land. But as I read it here in verse, I just want to read verses 13 and 14. This whole, most of this chapter is, is a similar tone to this. But verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. Now does that, if you, knowing what we know about Daniel, does it sound fair for him to say, well, we didn't obey God's voice? I think if it was me, I would say, yeah, they didn't, but I tried my best. I wasn't around when Manasseh was doing all those awful things, and this king and that king was doing this and doing that. That was before my time. Why am I the one living 70 years in captivity and enjoying every last year in captivity? In spite of all these things that I've done. That's, that's just me talking. But you notice that is not at all the tone of Daniel chapter 9. We don't have time to read the whole chapter. But Daniel had a good hold on the fact that God was righteous. And it didn't really matter what happened to Daniel. It didn't matter what Daniel's experience was. He said, God is right. He did the right thing by judging us. And he lumped himself right together with all, all the other people that whatever they had done, whatever had happened. In spite of the fact that as a young man, he was the one that wasn't even willing to eat the king's meat when he came to Babylon king's food. He was that principled. He didn't let his personal experience change his perspective of God. And that's, that's what I really admire about Daniel. Kind of as a side note, if you look at the timeline, I kind of suspect Daniel chapter 9 is basically the prayer that got him thrown in the lion's den. That's just my speculation because it's the same leader that threw him in the lion's den and he was making his prayer to the Lord because he realized they were to pray towards Jerusalem. If they ever went into captivity, that was what they were to do. To, 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 that was what, I think it was Solomon's uh, promise. If we pray towards Jerusalem, God will hear our prayer and we will be returned. And he says here in the early part of this chapter that he realized, he looked in the prophets and he set his face Uh, This is verse 3. I set my face upon the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. That's some speculation on my part, but the timeline is very, very close because Darius was not a ruler for very long at all. So it very well could have been exactly why he was put in the lion's den. Maybe it's it's not true. Maybe that detail is not true, but we know the, the, the entire thought is true as far as Daniel's perspective, his willingness to do what is right, and in his claim, his, his belief that God was right. To sum it up, when there is confusion, God is right, man is wrong. We're often confused on that issue, but when you ever have a question, God is right, man is wrong. My grandpa, for those that knew him, I don't know that any of you did, but he was famous for quoting the verse, let God be true and every man a liar. And I think that's a good place to... Remember that verse, let God be true and everyone a liar. A couple more I'd like to cover briefly. God is mighty. 
I think we heard that already in the devotional too, at least briefly. He's all-powerful. With God, all things are possible. Man has done a lot of things to harness power and energy and done what we would say are some amazing things. But when you stop and compare it to what God has done, it's, it's, it's pretty puny. Man harnesses energy and converts energy from this to that and makes it do this and that and, and then he frets about maybe he's doing too much of it and what's he going to do to the planet. That's, that's man for you. But God is uh, just, like I said, there's so many things we could say about this, but just one little thing to consider the sun, the energy that the sun puts off. We, we realize that Life is, well, no life would exist outside of the sun being there if it weren't there producing heat and light and so on. But as I understand, in spite of all the energy that we're receiving from the sun, we're receiving only about one, two billionth of the energy the sun puts off. The rest of it's just, I don't know, God had nothing better to do with it, so he just threw it out into outer space. You know, that's, that's just me speaking kind of flippantly, I guess. But you consider that. The energy for the whole earth is only one two billionth of that one star that's close to the sun, or to the, to the earth. And I don't, you know, we can't, I, I started adding up how many, on a percentage scale, you know, how many zeros, and I forget how many zeros it would be. Quite a few zeros, you know, like point zero 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 percent I think it was six zeros maybe, I can't remember. I shouldn't even start talking about it because I don't recall exactly how many it was. But just such a puny amount, and it, it's all God did was speak, and that's there it was, and it's been going for thousands of years like that. And kind of on a humorous note, man's speculation is that it's probably good for another couple billion years, so we're we're probably safe. I don't know how they came up with that speculation. I don't necessarily believe it, but that was that was what I read. But that's God. He doesn't just take energy and manipulate it. He is energy, or he is power. He produces it, he creates it, he spoke and it was. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. Behold, I am the God, the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? He said that to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had just bought a field. Jeremiah was in prison. The city he was in was under siege, and he knew that siege was going to end in destruction. We're kind of back at the beginning of the captivity that Daniel was in. What a, what a senseless time to buy land, isn't it? But God said, That's, you do that, and this is a sign that I will restore my people. This will be relevant. This purchase of this field is relevant. He said, I can do it, because I said I could and I would. Is there anything too hard for me? Number eight, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Job is a good place to go as you consider this. Job 38 verse 2 says, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? That was God's question for Job. You know, they'd had all that dialogue about his friends saying this, and Job was kind of arguing that maybe they didn't have things quite right, and they weren't considering this, and that, Maybe God wasn't quite being fair with him in all these things. And God finally responded there and he, 
He goes on for a couple of chapters and he asks Job a lot of questions there in chapters 38 and 39 and getting into 40 even a little bit. And he asks some kind of grand questions and kind of small questions that you know, maybe we don't even think to ask. And he said, well, how is that? How, where does the snow come from? And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of different questions that he asks. You, why don't you tell me and, and help me out, God's saying. I, if you know all these things, why don't you answer me? And you think of the wisdom of God. He, he, he never is surprised or learns something. He knows everything. That's hard for us to grasp as well as humans. We don't have that experience. I have not had that experience. Not even in one particular subject, one little tiny area of things, I have never known everything about it. Maybe you, some of you have. I thought of one example, too, that, that has, I thought is interesting. Our, we all have red blood cells. We have blood flowing through our bodies. A red blood cell is, I'm told, I understand it's six to eight microns in diameter. And I think of this in terms of God, God knows everything. And, and when he made man, and, and so many other things, he did it just, he didn't have any mistakes. He didn't do it over or have to correct things. But our red blood cells are about six or eight microns in diameter, I understand. Maybe somebody knows more about this than I do. It's very possible. How many of you know what a micron is? What it looks like? You can't see it. Um, I, I, look, I think of it this way. You know, you take your ruler or something, and those, if it has centimeters on it, it has millimeters, right? Those tiny little lines that almost run together. If you take those millimeters and divide them a thousand times, you'll have a micron. Okay? I, you can't see that. So you have just a couple of those makes a red blood cell. And as I understand it, at that size, they are just the right size. And in fact, they kind of have to deform and squeeze down to make it through your smallest blood vessels. They have to squeeze through one by one. You can't even begin to picture that. You know, I, The only way I, I, I tried thinking of different ways... And I guess the human hair, you can kind of hold it up and you can see, you know, if, if you're like me, you have to hold it up to the light or something if you even want to see it. But it would be, you know, you, you look at a human hair and I think that's could be, it probably varies some, maybe around 50 microns. Um, so if you have a red blood cell, you know, say it's like a car on a highway, your, your, your hair would be like a six-lane highway for for your red blood cell, if you put it in that, or bigger, okay? So that's a red blood cell. But it has to squeeze down really tight and go one by one to get through your tiniest blood vessels, which, incidentally, your tiniest blood vessels are in your brain. That's going to be the first thing to go if that were just a little bit off. But God got it right. He did it right. We're thankful for that, I hope. Man, on the other hand, is known for confidently trying things only to find out, oops, we shouldn't have done it that way. That was a mistake. How many times do you hear no known problems with this plan or this idea? They haven't tried it. How would they know? It's a new idea. Notice that when man says that. 
I could go into a lot of examples, too, if I wanted to, but we don't have time. Job 40, verse 2, in, in this wrapping up this thought. Shall he that contendeth with Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer him. God knows. God's right. God's mighty. And the last one I want to consider tonight is God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. You know, all these different things about God mean have a limited meaning if God is somewhere else. You know, maybe you've Somebody has said, well, you should get to meet this person. They are so nice. They, they're so knowledgeable about this thing or they're friendly, whatever reason. They have some reason. You should get to know this person. But you never do because your paths never cross. And so I could tell you all these things about God, but if, if you can't get to meet him, what does it mean? You see what I'm saying? Acts 17, this is... Paul was talking to the people, was it at Mars Hill, where they had the altar to the unknown God. They didn't know who God was. They were, they were sure there was this God, and there's a whole story behind that too that maybe you know. But, but he was talking to them, and in verse 27 of Acts 17, he said, They should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And so there's a couple things about God's omnipresence, that he's present everywhere. He misses nothing. Jonah found that out. You can't hide from God. He's everywhere. I think the psalmist said, if I can take the wings of the morning and hide in the other most parts of the sea, even there, you will find me, you will see me. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, he wants us to be near to him. He's not far away, and he's there to be known by us. And so, yet another reason, perhaps in a way tying some of these different thoughts about God, another reason to be thankful. He is right there. He wants to know us. He wants us to know him. So in God alone, I don't know what you have or don't have today, but in God alone you have a reason to be thankful. You have more than enough reason and I hope this message has helped you to remind you of that and help you to think along those lines. And also, in God, our reasons to be thankful will never change or be diminished. And in saying all this, yes, remember the things of God, the specific things. You know, we have this example of this table in front of us. You know, you think about the things that God has blessed us with. Be thankful for those things. But that's an outgrowth for the thankfulness of who God is. And in God we can be thankful regardless of what we are experiencing or what's happening in our life or isn't happening in our life. We have no reason to be unthankful. Unthankfulness might be one of the biggest dangers here in America that we face as Christians. Might be. I don't know. It's got to be one of the bigger ones. But we always have a reason to be thankful in God, more than enough reason. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for who you are. And, Lord, we don't understand all of that. It's, you are so much beyond us. But yet you have reached out to us. And you want to be near to each one of us. And you want to 
bring us into your holiness. And Lord, we, we want to be thankful in response and to be a thankful people. In Jesus' name, amen.